There we go. Good afternoon. Good evening. I'm Dove Tusman. You're on equal footing. Uh, we had a little bit of a mic issue there. First time there in, in the studio. It's nice to be back with you for a kind of normal format, let's say. Last week's show was pretty intense. We were going over critique from the last years of this program, and it was fun and intense, and it... Uh, Caused me to be a little bit more open, reflect on the way we're choosing our, our topics, and one of the things that I've committed to do from that process of going through a year, almost a year's worth of critique, is bringing the personal stuff to the table and uh, and tying it into the subject matter. That's going to be easy tonight because tonight's program is about the pressure of the plea, analyzing the impact of the plea bargain on the U.S. criminal justice system. And this is a topic that is very much in the public square right now because of the finding, uh, the guilty uh, verdict against Derek Chauvin in the George Floyd murder case and the talk about whether the other officers involved in that case that are charged with abetting that crime are going to plea and whether that's uh, just or not and whether the the society is kind of getting its day in court, so to speak, by seeing those uh, cases go to trial. It's also a topic, of course, not in the realm of uh, capital crime or in the in the world of violent crime, but it, the topic of the plea bargain is one that's very personal to me as well. I've actually had the, I guess, let's call it the unfortunate opportunity in my life to uh, be up close and personal with the intense pressure to plea, uh, in my case, when I was accused of something I knew I didn't do, but uh, it still kind of made rational sense to plea, and I'll talk about what I decided to do. So I'm uh, graced this uh, evening by a guest who's got experience looking at the issue of the plea bargain from different sides. It's hard to find someone who really has a balanced point of view from both the prosecutorial side and the defense attorney side. And uh, we're lucky to have Avi Moskowitz on equal footing with us. Avi is a 1980 graduate of Columbia Law School, and he was a federal prosecutor. He was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York in the late 80s and early 90s, and he's a partner at the law firm of Moskowitz Book. And now he's a criminal defense attorney, and his cases have run the gamut from securities fraud, tax fraud, public corruption, to uh, capital murder, racketeering, and virtually every type of case in between. Uh, Avi's practiced in New York, New Jersey, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and he's one of only a handful of attorneys who have actually tried a federal capital case to verdict, so he can also reflect on the the topic we we touched on with respect to the George Floyd case and he's helped his client avoid the death penalty in that case which was the United States versus Quinones and Rodriguez in the past 20 years Avi's actually successfully represented more than 50 clients charged with capital crimes and during his his tenure as a federal prosecutor Avi tried 24 cases to verdict 
and as a defense lawyer has tried more than 25 cases. So a ton of experience being in the courtroom, seeing the dynamic of the trial and also the pretrial stuff that goes on most germane to this show, the plea bargain. Avi's also an adjunct professor of trial advocacy at New York Law School, and he's taught trial advocacy as a faculty member of the National Institute of Trial Advocacy as well. And in 2011, Avi was elected by his peers as a fellow in the American College of Trial Lawyers, which is a great honor in recognition of his outstanding skills as a trial lawyer. In terms of personal life, Avi... You're a father of three, a grandfather of nine. You've been married for over 42 years. You're a bi- you're an avid biker. I just started learning how to mountain bike. And you root for the underdogs, Knicks, Rangers, Mets, Jets. I'm a Boston sports fan, so I'm a little ribbing about that. And you know what I, I like most about our pregame in terms of learning about you, Avi, is the fact that you are, you're a reader of a lot of nonfiction. I am too. And we've both been highly influenced and inspired by the philosophical writings of the late departed and blessed memory, Lord Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in the UK. So, and, and Lord Sachs had, uh, some views on, on what we're going to get into, uh, the morality of, of unjust laws and, and, um, and how we deal with that situation. So Avi, welcome to Equal Footing. It's good to have you on. It's great to be here. Avi, we're going to dive right in, but let me give the number out first to our listeners to participate in this discussion about plea bargains, the pressure to plea bargain, and how it like fundamentally shapes our criminal justice system. And you can participate anonymously or uh, naming yourself on such a sensitive topic. If you faced something like this in the legal system, it'd be great to hear your perspective. You can do so by voice, by dialing in live here on the radio, and you can also text a question, which hopefully we'll get to as well on the show. The number to call into is 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. And the text uh, number is 917 917- Four two eight four zero six two. That's nine one seven four two eight four zero six two. You can send a text or send a WhatsApp. Got that up on the up on the screen. Okay, Avi. First of all, what is a plea bargain in layman's speak? If someone doesn't know, is not a lawyer, hasn't been through uh, this type of situation. In very simple terms, it is an offer uh, made by the prosecution to a criminal defendant to plead either to one or less than all of the charges or to plead to a lesser charge than the than what has already been charged so for example in a drug case if you have uh, you've been charged with uh, trafficking 5 kilos of cocaine they may let you plead to trafficking a kilo because the sentences are going to be lower based on the amount of drugs. And that's an offer that, the, as a defendant, the prosecutors kind of give to you as a one and done? Is that right? You can like, you, you can take it or leave it, and, or otherwise you go to trial? Well, in the federal system, it tends to be, here's your offer, take it or leave it. Sometimes in, in the state system, in New York state courts, for example, uh, there's a little bit more of a give and take, and sometimes if you hold out, You'll get a better offer if you're the last person standing. In federal court, it's been my experience in almost 40 years of experience that the first offer is the is the offer, and it doesn't get better, or mm. rarely gets better. And what's the what's the incentive, or, or what's the disincentive? Because I've heard 
the concept of the trial penalty that if you are, let's say you're charged with exactly the same crime that you plead to versus where you go to trial and you're found guilty by a jury of your peers for the exact same crime, often people get sentenced to much harsher terms after they've gone to trial. Uh, sometimes people refer to that as a trial penalty. Do I have that right? Is that a, is that a real concept? Well, uh, it, this is a very hot topic now in uh, the criminal bar, uh, and the uh, National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers recently released a study on the trial penalty. Uh, in federal court, they <coughs> discuss uh, the benefits of pleading guilty. You get where in the federal court they have federal sentencing guidelines, and you get a three-point reduction in the guidelines, which has a commensurate reduction in the uh, amount of uh, or, or the sentence that you're facing under the, under the uh, advisory sentencing guidelines, uh, and you get a three-point reduction for pleading guilty, and they say it's a benefit for accepting responsibility. Yeah. Uh, that's one way of looking at it. Uh, that's the way the government and the prosecutors look at it, and it's the way the Supreme Court has looked at it. Uh, the defendants understand it's really a penalty for going to trial and forcing the government to prove its case, to call its witnesses, to spend the money mm. to uh, convict you uh, when they think you should plead guilty because the evidence is there, so Let, to speak. Yeah, we'll come back to that, the concept of the trial pen, penalty and people's fear that they, if they go to trial and lose, and it's very difficult to win in trials, we know statistically uh, as a defendant, that they'll you know be penalized for, for kind of having roll, rolled the dice, and there's a lot of debate, as you said, back and forth. But first, I want to step back and... You know, for those listeners that are like, I don't know, this topic doesn't really affect me. I've never been through a criminal justice proceeding and no one in my family has. This obviously affects the way that our system works, the taxpayer dollars that go into it. Can we take a step back for a second and, and educate us on when did this concept even start? Because it's now become so, I mean, over 90% of defendants waive their right to trial. Um, and and perf- and go go the direction of a plea bargain. Has this always been part of our criminal justice system? Has it has this evolved over time? And if so, why? Why should listeners you know care? How does it fit in? In the American system, it's really, as far as I know, always been a part of the system. Uh, look, let's let's face it. Uh, there are not enough judges. There are not enough courtrooms. There are not enough prosecutors to try all of the cases that are charged. Mm -hmm. Uh, The federal courts are much more selective, but if you think about, for example, the the state courts in New York, you know, New York County Supreme Court, they can have hundreds of cases a day that where people are arrested for street crimes ranging from robbery, burglary, drug sales, uh, you know, rapes, murders, uh, muggings, if they had to try all those cases, the system would be clogged and it would break down and nobody would get justice. Yeah, so there's a pressure I'm, of numbers to to, plea, to have a plea bargaining system. 
Right. I'm here on equal footing with Avi Moskowitz, who is a renowned criminal defense attorney. He's a former federal prosecutor. And we're talking about the plea bargain in the American criminal justice system. And we're going to get into, does it favor the prosecution? Does the system favor defendants? Uh, why is it used? And is it constitutional? You can participate in this conversation by calling 718-303-9090 or by texting a comment or question. We've already got a few texts, by the way, Avi, at 917-428-4062. So to your last point about the the the, the fact that the system is like, overwhelmed or clogged up and it would be overwhelmed if it functioned like we see on TV, which is everyone basically go, you know, usually goes to trial. And Mark Tishnet, I hope I pronounce his name correctly, who's a professor of, professor of constitutional law at Harvard as I was researching this topic, had a lot to say about this and encapsulated as follows. The vast majority of criminal cases are settled by plea bargaining. This should disturb us. Only the rare case actually goes to trial, mostly because judges now see case management rather than justice and presiding over trials as their primary responsibility. First of all, do you agree? And is that a necessary evil? Is this just the reality of it and we have to adjust to it? Do I agree? Uh, I, I don't necessarily agree. I don't see it as the, as the problem being the judges. It's not the judges who force plea bargains. Uh, it is the system that makes it advantageous for one side or another. Uh, the judges, certainly in federal court, do not play any role in plea bargaining. Uh, in state court, when you have a plea bargain uh, with a, an assistant district attorney, you can go in, you can tell the judge at the time of your plea, this is our deal, and the judge will either... will make a commitment to a defendant, if you take this deal, I will sentence you to the agreed-upon sentence. And that's just in, in federal, state court, right? In federal court, you have no guarantee. Right. In federal court, you have no guarantee. All you have is a guideline range, which the judge can ignore, because mm -hmm. the guideline range are advisory. And as a, as a defense lawyer, I always tell my clients, I view the guidelines as the ceiling, not the floor. So when you take a a plea, the guidelines tell you what the, the highest sentence you could get is, and my job is to get it below that. Well, we're going to take a break in a minute, and we'll come back, and I'll explain to the audience for those who have maybe just started listening to this program and don't know a little bit of, don't know much about my history, why this is such a personal topic for me. But before we do that, you've alluded to the way it affects the playing field between the prosecution and the defense, and the, it being the plea bargain system, a pre-trial kind of arrangement of pleading guilty to something, often a lesser charge than what's been originally charged. Does the system, this, this may not be a fair question, Avi, and if it isn't, you can, you can punt on it, but does the plea bargain system in general, in your view, favor the prosecution or favor the defense? Uh, you know, each case is, is different. Uh, I, I'll put it to you this way, and, and your viewers may not get it yet, but we can get into it. It takes a lot of guts for a defendant knowing that the evidence is weak against him or her, to nonetheless turn down a plea offer which, you know, will reduce 
uh, the likelihood of his going to jail or getting a, a long sentence. Uh, it takes a lot of guts to do that because you're rolling the dice. You know, I had a case, for example, where uh, it was a securities fraud case involving potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, the evidence against my client was very weak. On the eve of trial, they offered him what's called misprison of a felony, which is the lowest felony in, in the federal system. The guidelines sentence was very low. And he had to make a decision. Do I take a chance that I'll go to trial and get convicted and face 15 to 20 years? Or do I take this and face 15 to 21 months? Right. Uh, and he took the plea, even though in all likelihood he wasn't guilty. Right. Because the risk was too great. Well, I, I know that calculus up close and personal. I went a different direction. It's an incredibly difficult moment. And God willing... No one listening will face that or has faced that. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back on equal footing in a few minutes. We're talking to Avi Moskowitz. He's a renowned criminal defense attorney. He's also been a federal prosecutor. He's tried cases from capital murder to securities fraud, racketeering, and everything in between. We're having discussion, an honest assessment of the plea bargain in our criminal justice system. And... Who it favors? Should it should it exist? Is it constitutional? We'll be right back. All right, a, a note from a couple of our sponsors on Equal Footing. First, let's talk about Manhattan Medical for a minute. Manhattan Medical has a very important message for men. What is more emotionally painful than erectile dysfunction? It's being unable to have enjoyable sex. Manhattan Medical utilizes a new, very effective gains wave therapy. It's really got a lot of momentum now. It can help you achieve excellent results without expensive blue, without expensive blue pills and their side effects. Gains wave therapy at Manhattan Medical is non-invasive. It's surgery free. Most importantly, it's painless. With Manhattan Medical, there are no side effects, and for most patients, wonderful results. Manhattan Medical's Gains Wave Therapy can help you. You know, many listeners know the reason why Manhattan Medical came to my attention is I have a very good friend who's in his 80s and wanted to have an enjoyable sex life. He went to Manhattan Medical, and it fundamentally changed his life. So, no matter what your age, Manhattan Medical can help. Call now for free consultation, no side effects, treatment for erectile dysfunction. Call 888-EDCURE9. That's 888-EDCURE9 or 888-332-8739. That's 888-332-8739. And if you mention that you heard about Manhattan Medical's Gains Wave Therapy, on equal footing with Dove Tuzman, you'll get a free consult. So that's real value. Call now, 888-ED-QR9. Okay, let's talk about another regular sponsor for our program, makes equal footing possible, and that's Mechanical Art Capital. 
Mechanical Art Capital offers financing to watch collectors and watch dealers anywhere in the world. Based in New York, but you can access their services from anywhere. You can unlock the cash value of your watch collection or inventory through Mechanical Art Capital's guaranteed buyback contracts. They're easy, they're quick, you can get your capital in one to two days. For more information, call 833-209-0972. That's 833-209-0972. Operators are standing by, or you can also visit them online at mechanicalartcapital.com. I've been caught You're, you're back on equal footing. We're talking about the plea bargain and its effect on the American criminal justice system. And I'm joined by Avi Moskowitz, who's a celebrated defense attorney. He's also been a federal prosecutor. And I didn't give Avi a heads up about this uh, part of my life in advance of the show because I wanted this, you know, to be fresh and real. The reason why I've for a long time wanted to do a show on the plea bargain, and I'm putting myself at some risk in doing so, uh, because you know, there could be some, some blowback, but I think it's important for us to speak our truth and be out there on these sensitive topics. I myself have faced this horrible choice. Uh, as some listeners know, in uh, 2015, September 2015, I was arrested, which was a massively life-altering and painful event, while I was traveling abroad on a business trip, and it was related to a securities fraud charge around a, a public company that I was running, a, a software company I had actually run some years earlier. And it was completely unexpected. Uh, there uh, there was no communication between the prosecutor's office in New York and, and my lawyers. Uh, I was living in New York. I was frequently uh, in and out of, of other parts of the U.S. But the uh, Southern District of New York chose to wait until I was traveling abroad to unseal an indictment which put me in a weird state of legal limbo where I was in pretrial detention, uh, or the Orwellian speak around it was administrative detention. In reality, uh, the prosecutors well knew that I was in a horrible prison in the country of Colombia where I had gone for a four-day business trip to inspect a, a property real estate project in the coast city of Cartagena. And I found myself from one day to the next, uh, running a company, an investment office, uh, having a somewhat uh, charmed life, if you will, to being in a horrible third world prison. And it became clear almost right away, I got a visit within the first 24 hours from a legal attache from the U.S. Embassy, that the easy way to z- resolve it was uh, some sort of plea. And I knew that as soon as I saw, that that took a couple days, that what I was charged with I hadn't done, but I also knew that there was some complexity around the issue and that I felt I might be truly guilty of criminal negligence, which as Avi uh, will probably be able to attest to is uh, a crime that, that typically does not involve incarceration. So I had this really difficult choice that I had to face around, do I engage in discussions around a plea um, or do I, you know, roll the dice knowing that, yeah, I was innocent of what I was uh, was being charged with. It was one of the more difficult decisions of my life. I decided to fight um, and that has had its own 
um, benefits over the years. It's also had an extraordinary cost in every way imaginable, including more time in pretrial uh, detention because I wasn't playing ball. Uh, it also in, depleted enormous amount of capital with lawyers, incredibly expensive to defend yourself in white-collar uh, suits, and it had tremendous reputational damage. And you know, my I had to live with my choice. I then have other you know, there are things I, I said that I said that I that I can live with, and other elements that I regret um, in in that process. But I I think why should I have faced that choice? Uh, and there is a fundamental constitutional issue here, Avi. Uh, why is it that, for example, the way Alan Dershowitz, the, one of the uh, greatest legal commentators in the United States, also a Harvard Law constitutional law professor, um, puts it is, imagine if you got a tax rebate if you waived your First Amendment rights. Like if you said, you know what, I, I, forget about free speech. I don't need free speech in my life. I'll take a 30% benefit on my taxes, please. That would be a waiver of a constitutional right. But your Sixth Amendment right to a trial by jury, uh, you know, if you don't waive it, you get penalized. You know, how, you know, I understand that the system's clogged up and there's massive case management issues, but why is that the responsibility of an individual defendant? Why should they be faced with that horrible choice of knowing that if they go through a process that ultimately statistically favors the, the prosecution, that, you, you know, you're going to be penalized if you lose versus uh, go through a plea bargain? You know, explain to us why the constitutional issue shouldn't be first and foremost. Uh, first and foremost. Well, the Supreme Court uh, has ruled on the constitutionality of plea bargains. In a, in a case that preceded my time as a prosecutor, I think it goes back to the 50s at least, uh, maybe the 60s, uh, in a case called Bo- right. Borden-Kircher versus Hayes, okay. they basically said, uh, we're not penalizing you for going to trial. We are giving you a benefit for accepting responsibility, taking the first step towards rehabilitation, showing remorse, all of which are, in theory, valid reasons for giving somebody uh, a break. Mm-hmm. Now, if we, if we think about it, for example, in religious terms, uh, God, when we ask God for, uh, to give us a break, for example, Jews on Yom Kippur, we ask God to give us a break, the first thing we have to do is confess our sins. If we don't confess our sins, we don't, we're not entitled to the break. So that's the concept from the prosecutors and the systems perspective. Yes, the, uh, the reality is we need to plea bargain because the system would otherwise be clogged up and overwhelmed. But the theoretical reason for giving a break for somebody who, uh, plea- who pleads guilty is that they are, it's the first step towards rehabilitation. I thought you were going to mention, you know, the Brady case in, in 1970 with Supreme Court said that a defendant demonstrates in a plea bargain that he's ready and willing to admit his crime and enter the correctional system in a state of mind that affords success, uh, hope for success and rehabilitation, etc. And, but in practice, you know, 
Most plea bargains are not really expressions of remorse. They're just rational decisions around, you know, that, that take into account the, the game theory. So, so couldn't you say like, fine, you know, reward uh, people if you want for taking a plea bargain, but why should you punish people for going to trial? Again, the, it, it really is a question of how you look at it. If the, if the, if the law says, the crime carries a five-year sentence. But if you, if you express remorse and, and, you know, take steps toward rehabilitation, we will give you three years, then that would make sense. That's the way the system looks at it, even though in reality you are making a as you said, rational decision based on game theory. Where you know what? What are my odds? What are, you know? What am I willing to risk? What am I not willing to risk? Uh, it's a justification. It's a rationale. Uh, is it? Is it real? In some cases, it's real, and in some cases, it's not. So we're going to get to a couple text questions, and we have a caller waiting as well. But Avi, straight in the the middle of the brow. How many people that take a plea bargain that is a lesser charge to what they would be charged with at trial and they're afraid of the trial penalty, in your estimation, are innocent of what they've been, what they would be charged with at trial? Just, what's your sense? That's a really hard question. Uh, there's a new book out by Judge Jed Rakoff of the Southern District where he discusses this issue and he comes up with an estimate and I don't know whether his estimate was 5% or 10% uh, in my practice when a client tells me he didn't do it then it's my statement to him or to her then you can't plead guilty because I can't stand there and have you lie under oath and say that you did it. Good for you. So, look, for, from a defense lawyer's perspective, it's a really, really difficult. Uh, we didn't live the defendant's life. So we don't really know whether he did it or he didn't do it or whether he's, you know, taking the plea because he doesn't have a choice. As I said to you, it is really hard to withstand the pressure to take the plea when there's so much on the line. Uh, so I'm going to guess that there's at least 5 or 10% of people who plead when they didn't do it. But that's purely a sure, guess. Sure, just speculate, but it's based on you know uh, nearly 40 years of experience. Avi, uh, we're going to take another break in a minute, but in preparing for this show, one of the things that I was fascinated by was the meeting of the minds from the what I would call the far right and the far left, although as many listeners of Equal Footing know, I resist those pithy labels. I'm not sure they mean what they used to. But in this particular case, and one of the things we try to do on Equal Footing is really hear each other's diverse, divergent points of view uh, without getting uptight, actually able to listen to other opinions so we can we know how to confront and, and convince others. So let me take, on the left... 
a, I'm sure you, you're aware of uh, a, a civil rights, leading civil rights advocate and lawyer and author, Michelle Alexander. She writes a lot about the, the overcharging that comes from plea bargains. So just take a, you know, one quote to try to make her point. Prosecutors now frequently overcharge. They load up on charges on individual defendants because they know that that will force people to plea bargain to a lesser offense and essentially convict themselves because they're terrified of the very high currently implemented potential sentences for sometimes minor crimes. So that's a, that's a civil rights activist lawyer kind of on the left. Now, let's take someone on the right who's a constitutional professor of law at SMU and also a prominent member of the Federalist Society. It's Dale Carpenter, one of my favorite legal thinkers. He's written a lot also on the, the problem with the plea bargaining system, but from a different angle in the perverse incentives, the moral hazards that are involved with police uh, investigations. So he says... Police throughout the U.S. have been caught more every year fabricating, planting, and manipulating evidence to obtain convictions where cases are otherwise very weak. Some authorities regard police perjury as so rampant at this point that it can be considered a subcultural norm rather than an aberration. There also appears to be widespread police perjury in the preparation of reports because police often know these reports can be used in plea bargaining even if they won't be accepted at trial. Therefore, officers often justify false and embellished reports on the grounds that it's the most efficient way to mete out justice to defendants who are guilty of wrongdoing but may be exonerated on technicalities. So I'm sorry for the long quote, but I found that very interesting. Two legal commentaries that rarely ever agree both saying the plea bargain system has become entrenched, stale, and has perverse incentives to it. On the one hand, overcharging. On the other hand, the effect it has on, on law enforcement uh, reports and police perjury. D- are either of these sides right, Avi? Is it somewhere in the middle? How do you explain the, the meeting of uh, the minds on this issue? Well, uh, what I'll tell you is, at least from the quotes that you gave, it seems to me that neither of those lawyers have ever been a criminal defense lawyer or a prosecutor. Uh, the, the overcharging in terms of number of counts is really a meaningless uh, thing. Uh, the number of counts never really matters. Uh, it's, it's, you know, you can charge a murder under three different theories. It's still the facts are still the same. Did the guy commit the murder or not commit the murder? You can charge, you know, securities fraud as bank fraud and wire fraud and mail fraud uh, and, and money laundering. The, the underlying facts are still the same, and the sentence at the end of the day is going to be the same under the, the federal sentencing guidelines, regardless of how many counts you get convicted on. In, that's on with respect to Michelle Alexander's quote, with respect to uh, Professor Carpenter's quote, the flaw in that is criminal defendants rarely get to see the police reports of, for example, the most important police reports, which are those that contain the statement of witnesses. They don't get to see those until right before the trial. So, Mm. What's really perverse, the, the, the real problem with the system from a defense perspective is the most crucial evidence in the case is not made available to the defense until 
a week or two weeks or sometimes three days right. before the trial. Yeah, I so you that. are ple- you are forced to plead without really knowing the strength of the government's case. Interesting. That sounds like fodder for another show. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Avi Moskovitz. Avi, we're going to take a couple listeners' uh, text, comments, and questions, and we have a caller on line four. It's been very patiently waiting. We'll be back on equal footing in a minute talking about the pressure of the plea and the way that the plea bargain affects our criminal justice system. We'll be right back. You've only had to run so far. Equal Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skin care. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. I've been You're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. I'm here with my guest, Avi Moskowitz, a renowned criminal defense attorney. He's also been on the other side as a federal prosecutor. And Avi, I just want to say I really appreciate your intellectual honesty and your willingness to engage on this challenging subject of the of the plea bargain. Well, let's make it this a little bit more accessible. Let's take a couple of listener uh, questions or comments, and then we're going to take that caller on, on line four. So... The uh, first question I'll, I'll read to you, editing a little bit for length, is the plea, gar- the plea bargain system seems fundamentally designed to decrease the volume and costs in the judicial system. So that means it's basically a money and resources issue, right? Is that right, Avi? Uh, it is l- largely uh, a money and resources issue. Uh, certainly, certainly in the state courts, the local courts, where the volumes are so great, uh, it, it is a, uh, a money and, and resource uh, issue. Although, by the way, now that New York State, for example, has dispensed with or, or eliminated uh, cash bail for many cases, uh, you know, for all nonviolent cases, there's a lot less pressure oh, to to plead guilty right. because you're out during the pendency of your case. Yeah, the pressure for me was driven. I decided not to do it, which was, as I said before, an incredibly difficult decision because I knew that meant, in my case, pretrial detention. And uh, that's an incredibly uh, difficult 
uh, it's hard to justify even with respect to how it affects your your family, your kids, or, or whatever. Really, guilt or innocence well, sometimes takes second seat. Well, then imagine if you're a you know a poor minority who gets picked up for you know uh, a five or ten dollar drug sale uh, and can't make the five hundred dollar bail. Right. cash bail that used to be in the system. You could be in jail awaiting trial for longer than you would ever get sentenced. Right. So so the pressure there to plea bargain, whether you did it or not, uh, you know, if you know that you can get time served when you've been in for two weeks, you're going to take that plea whether you did it or not. That's and that, that, disin- that incentive has been largely eliminated by the elimination of, of the cash bail system. While, while we're on this roll, let's take a couple of other uh, text questions of some good ones coming in. This is a, Obviously, if anyone's been through it or had a loved one go through this process, it's pretty intense, and I promise we're going to get to you. Patient caller on line four. <laughs> uh, taking a plea was the regret of my life. I now have a criminal record forever, I think. Is there anything I can do to reopen my case? The answer is probably not. Depends on how long ago it happened, uh, and uh, you know there are there are all kinds of habeas corpus remedies, but the the Supreme Court over the years has limited those uh, in terms of the time frame. In state court, there are again different remedies, but uh, they're very limited. And and the answer is in most cases no, because when you plead guilty. You have to tell the judge you're doing it knowingly and voluntarily, and nobody coerced you and nobody forced you. And in federal court, for example, you have to factually allocute, meaning you have to tell the judge exactly what you did uh, that makes you guilty of the crime. So it's it's very difficult to undo a plea. Avi, we had a guest on some months ago, and one of, around the criminal criminal justice reform, and we touched on the changing drug laws. Is that true? Also, for people that have records, for example, for marijuana consumption, and they have a criminal record for that, and then the law changes, it becomes legal. Is there anything people can do to go back and, and, and rectify their, their criminal record based on the change of the law afterwards? That, that is an case. open question in the new, now that marijuana is being decriminalized. Every state is going to be different. Uh, I don't think the law has yet been decided in New York as to what they're going to do with that. Got it. Well, that's going be an interesting discussion for another time. hope we can have you on again. All right, caller on line four. How are you doing tonight? Yes, good evening, Dove. Hey, is it Stan? Do know it. How are you, sir? Good. Nice to have you on. Always a pleasure. Uh, you basically, to some extent, answered my question. I've always felt that uh, bail and uh, 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 submitting to uh, uh, trying to get a uh, settlement is the brother and sister of the judicial system. And here in New York, it's been destroyed. You would agree to that. I mean, you basically said it. To some extent, it's been wiped out, not just the bail, but when you uh, negotiate a settlement in terms of criminal whatever and so forth. You settle, you know, you take a plea. But has, how bad has the bail uh, legislation hurt uh, accepting a plea? 
Let me, let me ask, uh, clarify your question, Stan. Are you asking the the elimination, not the elimination of, but the well, massive it, it, reform it, of the it, bail law? Each, each works with the other, but because of the new bail law, as he said, the cash bail, uh, how has it hurt pleading? I think you said it has hurt it or it hasn't. Has well, it? no, what, what I said was it has removed the pressure to plead guilty early on in the case. It, there, so it's there, better for the criminal, is what you're saying. It's better for the criminal, whoever it is. It's better. It, it, is, it provides the accused who comes with a presumption of innocence the opportunity to review the evidence to determine whether the government has a case or doesn't have a case. Uh, and it takes away the uh, pressure to plead simply because I can get out tomorrow if I plead, but if I don't plead, I'm going to be here for a year or two years awaiting a trial that I win. Mm. That's, that's the problem. Again, and, and you have to remember, the reason behind the bail reform was that rich people, middle-class people, uh, working people, people that had stable uh, families, they were getting out on bail. Right. The so overwhelming like level, burden level the was field. falling on the poor who right. couldn't come up with 250 or $500 to get out on bail right. on minor charges. Stan, does that answer your question? Up to a point, but let, let me, let's go to the other side of the record. Let's talk about corporate plea bargaining. I, don't, I know you're the corporate Oh, who really get away with Stan, almost everything. Are you, you, are you talking, are you, no, no, it's fine. Are you talking about indiv- people that are white-collar defendants, or are you talking about corporations that are yeah, under criminal example, investigation? Uh, a product that hurts people, and uh, they don't settle, or they plea, you know, people, they, they work deals and so on. That's plea bargaining. Okay. Yeah, sure, extent, you know, corporations corporate, plea. corporate plea bargaining is, is really worthy of a completely separate uh, uh, show. Because the, the, the measures or, you know, what, you're, what you consider when you are the CEO of a company is completely different than what an individual faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, CEOs of companies have to consider their shareholders. They have to consider their employees. They have to consider whether the company can continue to exist if they take a plea. Prosecutors, in the same way, have, have different calculations. Because after the Arthur Anderson case, you know, going back to Enron, where Arthur Anderson uh, which was, was an, convicted. Which was an, an accounting firm, not a person, for those right. listeners who don't know. <laughs> right. But it, but it was a big employer, a mass, you know, a massive employer. Sure, it was one of the it largest accounting up, firms in the country. It ended up going out of business and then having the conviction overturned. So that, you know, all those people lost their jobs and a major accounting firm is no longer in existence because, for what? Yeah. So, so you I, know, but that's, a, that's a, a completely separate topic. I would love to do a show on criminal prosecution of corporations. It's a fascinating topic and it's changed a lot over the last 20 years as a result of the 2000-2001 financial crisis and then Obama's 
uh, prosecution of individuals that were previously not prosecutors, individuals under criminal law. But let's hold that for a different show. Stan, I always appreciate your intelligent uh, questions. Uh, thank you. Uh, before we take the next break, Avi, one of the things that was interesting as I was going through research for this show was the way that the plea bargain system has actually interacted with conscientious objection to unjust laws. And uh, and I thought it was kind of appropriate for tonight because uh, those in the audience who are celebrating the Jewish holiday of Lag Baomer to some extent, are celebrating conscientious objection to unjust Roman law, Rabbi Simeon Bar Yochai, and so forth, who who was uh, Rabbi Akiva's uh, disciple and and you know had this commitment to defy unjust laws. And I want to play a clip. Hopefully, our audio engineer, wonderful audio engineer, Dimitri, is ready uh, to play a, a a clip on on this uh, on this concept. On the other hand, I must be honest enough to say uh, that I do feel that there are two types of laws. One is a just law and one is an unjust law. I think we all have moral obligations to obey just laws. On the other hand, I think we have moral obligations to disobey unjust laws because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. I think the distinction here is that when one breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust, he must do it openly, he must do it cheerfully, he must do it lovingly, he must do it civilly, not uncivilly, and he must do it with a willingness to accept the penalty. And any man who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust. So that uh, was Martin Luther King, 1965, on Meet the Press, and generated um, probably one of the most, uh, if not perhaps the most famous con- uh, quote on on conscientious objection to unjust laws, that one has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey un- unjust laws. And the tying together, first of all, always love any excuse to put in a quote, uh, yeah, you know, audio of the great Martin Luther King on this program. But... What was surprising in my research was how many times he conscientiously refused plea bargains. In fact, it turns out that every single time that Martin Luther King was in jail, and he was in jail many times, he had an opportunity to not be in jail by accepting a lesser plea. And there's a history in conscious, uh, conscientious objections, uh, starting in this country with uh, Jim Crow laws and other ones as well, even related to prohibition and so forth, of people highlighting it by the rejection of pleas and highlighting the fact that pleas were offered as a means of showing that those the charges themselves were unjust and that it was really kind of a way of exerting uh practical pressure, not in, in, uh, implementing a moral order. Is what do, what do you think about this, Avi? Is there a place in the legal profession? You know, because you know, like like Martin Luther King said, the it's the it it's not about just the cooperation with good; it's about the non-cooperation with evil. I mean, is there a place in the legal system to um, actively object? two plea bargains, even under the circumstances where it would be highly advisable for your client to kind of raise the conscience of society in general? Uh, uh, look, if you're, as, as 
Martin Luther King said, uh, if you're willing to pay the price, then the answer is yes, there is, you know, you should, if you feel that strongly about it and, and you want to make the moral point, then yes, you should re- reject the plea bargain. Uh, look, it's not only here. You know, think about some of the great uh, heroes of, of Jewish history. You know, think about uh, Sharansky and all of the, uh, the refuseniks in the Soviet Union, or Sakharov, for example, or, or Novotny now who, you know, went to trial and, and asserted their rights and refused to bend to what they saw, thought was an unjust system. Knowing they were, they were willing to pay the price. Right. We're going to take one last break, and then we're going to come back with Avi Moskowitz talking about this sometimes abstruse but very important topic around the core of the way we're organized as a society, the plea bargain, the pressure of the plea, and how it affects the U.S. criminal justice system. We'll be right back on Equal Footing. All right, well, that brings me back. Fight the Power by Public Enemy, 1989, if I'm not mistaken. I think that was first, first time I ever heard that was on uh, that Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing. I remember it was like Rosie Perez dancing to the song. Anyway, all right, so our last but very important sponsor of Equal Footing is DocuVax. And you you guys have heard me talk about DocuVax before. It's a company I'm really passionate about. It brings the power of your medical records back to you. You know, your medical records are not owned by your doctor or your insurance company. You need to know if you're up to date on your vaccines and immunizations, your lab results, uh, preventative screenings, even things like x-rays and MRIs uh, for orthopedic issues. Gone are the days of losing time tracking down your old medical records or sharing test results with a new healthcare provider because the DocuVax system covers over 60 different important biomarkers or fundamental elements of your medical profile from COVID and flu and tetanus vaccines to colorectal and breast cancer screenings or to your blood type or allergy information. Have it all centralized in one place. It's a HIPAA-compliant digital storage facility. It's available on the DocuVax website or on Google, Android, and Apple iOS app stores. You can privately access all of your medical records securely and share them in the way you want to using a proprietary QR QR code based system. And most importantly, DocuVax medical professionals, that's right, doctors and nurses are on call for you 24 hours a day to validate your vaccine records, your blood tests, or anything else in your medical locker. So for as little as $6.99 per month, DocuVax subscribers can access their individual medical information using this proprietary system, and it keeps your data secure at all times. To get more information or to sign up, call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. Operators are standing by. You can also go to DocuVax.com. That's D-O-C-U-V-A-X.com. I've been called... All 
right, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. I'm here with my guest, Avi Moskowitz, who's a renowned criminal defense attorney. He's been a federal prosecutor. I won't hold it against you, Avi. You're also a fan of New York sports teams like the Rangers and the, and the Jets. I'm from Boston. I shouldn't say that on the air, being that we uh, record out of our studio in, in New York. Avi, I'm going to read you one more uh, listener comment or question, and then let's go to our final kind of uh, lightning devil's advocacy round. <laughs> and that'll be a, an interesting one on on this uh, this issue. Actually, maybe I'll read two questions here. Okay, so uh, one is, Avi, this is directed at you, obviously. Having been on both sides, what is the one key improvement you would suggest to the current plea bargain system, either state or federal? Great question. Uh, and the answer goes back to what I was talking about a little while ago, which is uh, open file discovery. Uh, if the defense knows everything mm. then uh, about the case and the, they have as much information as the prosecutors have, then everybody can make a rational decision as to what's in their best interest. Mm. The problem for the defense is certainly in federal court, uh, more so than in state court, they go in blind. The witness statements and are not provided to them till right before trial, and by then the plea offer is off the table. So you have to go in not knowing the strength of the government's case. And I'll give you one example, because, Dove, we talked about, you know, personalizing it. Mm-hmm. I had a, a client, a young uh, African-American woman who was charged in a drug conspiracy, and she was facing a mandatory minimum of 15 years if she went to trial and lost. They offered her a plea bargain at three years. She said, I didn't do it, and was going to go to trial. And a few days before the scheduled trial, the government turned over what we call 3500 material, which was the prior statements of the witnesses, and I learned that the agent in charge of the case had perjured himself in the grand jury. I would which never got, have which learned was that. What produced the original indictment? Well, what it meant is she, he put her in, a, in, in, in meetings where she wasn't at, and that where the video showed that she wasn't present. And so now I knew that the whole indictment was baloney, uh, and I, you know, and I was going to win a trial. And I went to the prosecutors, and I, I went to the supervisors, and I complained about it. And on the Friday before Monday's trial, they dropped the charges. But the only reason I knew that, or the only reason I achieved that result, is because I had a client who had the guts to say, I'm not going to take the offer. I'm going to take the chance of getting a 15-year mandatory minimum sentence. That doesn't happen very often. Very rarely. Avi, we're just about up on time. And at the end of this show, we like to have to show that we can take different sides of an issue and learn from them. I'd like you to kind of take the other side and our remaining just like a minute or less. Why would you advocate for an end to the plea bargaining system? What's a, what's a stronger, let's do 30 seconds. What's the strongest argument to end the plea bargaining system? Everybody should have the right to put the government to its proof. Uh, that's the constitutional right. Everybody should be allowed 
to exercise that right if they choose without penalty. And what that's 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 great. That that I think I'm sure hit people hard who have intent to listening on this issue. What is the strongest argument in 30 seconds or less for the benefit of the plea bargaining system? Uh, when people have uh, know that they've committed a crime and are willing to accept responsibility, that's a mature adult decision and they have taken the first step towards rehabilitation, they've shown some remorse, and they should uh, get some credit for it. They, should, they deserve a break. Makes sense. Avi Moskowitz, partner at the law firm of Moskowitz Book, uh, based in New York, renowned uh, trial attorney, defense attorney, has also been a federal prosecutor, so knows this issue from both sides. Avi, love to have you in the future here on Equal Footing, and thank you for addressing this issue of the plea bargain and how it impacts our criminal justice system. Thanks, Dove. I'd love to come back. Good night. That's just the way it is. Some things will never change. That's just the way it is. Ah, but don't you believe?